Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi. We are going to take care of business. You know, I got a lot of business questions today. Every week I go through the questions you, the listeners, submit. We ferret through some of those to pick out some that I think will help all of us learn how to do business better. Now, when I say doing business, obviously, if you uh, have a job, you're still doing business. But uh, most of the questions that we're going to cover today have to do with more entrepreneurial, creative, non-traditional kind of things. Got a couple that have to do with uh, jobs themselves, but uh, there's a soft line between job and business. I mean, I encourage everyone to see yourself as an independent contractor, see yourself as self-employed at some level, because you really are, you're working for yourself. So if you choose to have one customer, that being what it would look like in a traditional job, or you choose to have five or 10 or a hundred customers, it's not really a quantum leap anymore. It's kind of a soft line. So we're going to be talking about things that cover all the applications, whether you have a job or are doing something more independent principles for success are much the same. They cross those lines. So stay with us. Here's some of the things we're going to be discovering and discussing today. What is the most important characteristic of a leader? Last Friday, I attended the Chick-fil-A leader cast simulcast here in Franklin. And I'll tell you what one of the presenters had to say on that. Somebody says, no, this is a question I left off on last week. We were talking about a gentleman who had two concerns in business. One of those being, I have a big fear of success. I'm afraid if I start something, it will grow bigger than I can handle. Interesting question. My success in selling cars is taking a toll on me emotionally. Dan, how can I transition from these linear paying jobs to more residual income jobs? Should I always dress up? Well, that is wear a suit and tie for an interview, no matter what the job application is. Dan, how would one go about selling enough PDFs or eBooks to make it worthwhile? What is a reasonable return on investment, ROI, when it comes to hiring a coach? Now, those are all great questions that really lead into broader issues. I mean, all of those do. So we're going to plow in and go through those. Now, what is the most important characteristic of a leader? Well, last week I had the pleasure of attending the Chick-fil-A leader cast simulcast here in Franklin. So we had three big screens up. Uh, Ernie Campbell was the host for that here locally. Did a wonderful job. Asked me to come in and do a luncheon presentation, which I was delighted to do. So knowing that these presenters were going to be talking about the characteristics of leaders, I talked about the power of a mastermind because I wanted to have something additional, another component of leadership that we sometimes overlook, that being the power of linking arms with others. Sometimes we assume that as one becomes a more important, successful leader, you by virtue of being a leader become more and more isolated, more and more alone. That's really an unfortunate kind of happening if that occurs. You need to stay linked to other people or your success will start to diminish. Now, here's what Marcus Buckingham had to say. Marcus Buckingham, you may recognize his name from Strength Finders. He talked about being a leader. Here's what he said. As a leader, 
Authenticity is your most precious commodity. Authenticity. So if you're a leader, you're hiding behind you know, board meetings, smoke and mirrors, trying to protect uh, the people from the, the stockholders from knowing what's really going on. Now all those things are counter to being a most effective leader. The most important commodity you have as a leader is authenticity. Now we talked about, Marcus talked about the techniques of one leader are hard to transfer to another. Every great leader is different. So even there, you look for what we talk on here about here a lot is look for your own authenticity. What makes you unique as a leader? There's no perfect profile. Find what is unique about you and then build leadership principles around that. John Maxwell said, I have to know me to grow me. Now, John's another one who's built his entire career on leadership principles, writing, speaking, coaching. So he says, I have to know me to grow me. Again, the power of authenticity. Tim Tebow was interviewed on the LeaderCast presentation. Tim says one of his biggest keys to his own success is don't worry about what you can't control. Pretty good advice. Don't worry about what you can't control. Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Church on the north side of uh, Atlanta, great leader, spokesperson at this point. He says, every decision you make becomes part of your story. Don't minimize the importance of even those little decisions. Well, it's not going to matter. Nobody will know. No, every decision becomes part of your story. Anyway, just some tips from that leader cast. It was a great event. Will happen. Happens every year. It's already booked for a date in May. I think it's May 13th of next year. So plan for that. Those are the kind of things I encourage you to go to kind of things I've been going to for years, but go to the Chick-fil-A leader cast one day event, great investment of your time, energy, and money. All right, let's go to some of the questions. All right. Now, now last week I talked about Roger's question. He's making pens from different kinds of exotic woods. He asked if it would be ethical for him to take a portion of the proceeds to repay for his materials. Even if he says the profits are going to support the wounded warrior project. And I said, absolutely. I mean, you can structure it any way you want to. I mean, there's a lot of organizations out there where they say a percentage of profits go to, or some kind of a fundraiser comes through your town, a percentage of the profits go to, I mean, even there. So you really don't know what's going on there. So just be careful in how you present it on the front end. If you say all revenue goes to wounded warrior project, then certainly you need to do that. Even when people say all proceeds, sometimes you don't really know what that means. Does that really mean every dollar generated? If you sell a pen for $20, does $20 go to the worthy cause that you say you're donating to? Or do the proceeds mean after your costs are taken out? So you take out $10 and then donate $10. I mean, you can do that, but you can certainly just say, you know, the majority of the profits go to or a percentage of the profits go to or all profits. You could say all profits are donated to, and you could still take out a reasonable compensation for the materials and your time. That's still all profits. Profits are what's left over. So nothing unethical about that. But the other part of Roger's question was, he says, I also have fear, fear of success. I'm afraid that this may take off and go to the point where I'll be spending all my free time away from my day job making pens. I don't want to start something to just shut it down because it grows bigger than I can handle. 
Roger, that is everybody's dream. That's why we start these little side businesses on the, the to, to do an expansion of our hobby or something we care about or think is worthy. I mean, we want it to grow so it's bigger than we can handle ourselves. I mean, that's the definition of a new business, a new venture, a great nonprofit, anything. You, you please get past your concerns about it growing. I mean, that will, in fact, cripple you. Now, if you structure it so you're being compensated, then certainly you have a reasonable start of something that can be scalable, something that can go from doing 10 pens a week to doing a thousand where you're hiring other people to do the work, where you may not be doing the pens yourself at all anymore. You're managing the business, but it grows. And all of a sudden, and golly, I, I tell stories on here about like Cordia Harrington, a local lady here who started making buns for McDonald's stores. Well, as she got contracts with Pepperidge Farm and Kentucky Fried Chicken and other vendors like that. I mean, they now make like a thousand buns an hour or something. I mean, you, you, you want your business idea. If it has merit on a small scale, it ought to have merit on a larger scale as well. So be prepared for and plan for that, but you've got to get past your fear of success. And we all have to deal with that. I mean, I find that one of the biggest limiting factors in how high people go is not what's available or what circumstances would allow, but it's that sense between their own two ears of what they deserve. And we see that played on a lot with take an NFL football player comes out of the ghetto. Boom. All of a sudden he gets a $20 million bonus. Six months later, he's blown the money, ruined his reputation and he's back in the ghetto. He didn't have a big enough sense of deserving and personal worth to match the money that came. It came too fast. A lot of dynamics there, obviously, but we all have some sense of that. I mean, I find people who lose a job making $45,000 a year. And so they look for a job where they would be making between 40 and 50. Another job opportunity comes along, matches them perfectly, fits their skills. It's at $85,000. They don't even apply for it because they just don't have that big of a sense of worth or deserving. So be careful that your fear of success isn't just an artificial ceiling that you've put on yourself that keeps you from experiencing really big success. I've been a lot of conversations about this just recently with my brother, five years older than I, my only brother. Uh, I've always loved him deeply as he does me. We're very, very different. He chose to, live a very simple life. He has a sense that if you have money, you've probably taken advantage of somebody along the way, much different approach to money and riches and wealth than I do. I've talked with him about that a lot. You know, I said, what is it in our upbringing being, having been raised in the same family that makes you so disdainful of money, of success? Whereas I go after it like a moth to the light and we're very different. Now I did have to, you know, study and get counseling and work through, you know, reading, trying to figure out, you know, is it okay? Because we had so many messages in our household that you know, money is dangerous and money is the root of all evil, not the love of money, like the Bible says, but money itself. And I had to work through those things. And I approach that very aggressively as a personal uh, enrichment, personal learning process. And not just so I could justify it, but so that I had a healthier approach to that. But 
I think you can do that. You know, break through your fear of success, feeling that if success comes, you're going to sabotage it, which we see a lot of people do. Well, we could go on on that all day. Paul from Mesa, Arizona says, Dan, as a web developer, I'm working at a small firm. I was recently approached by a large media company and was invited for an interview at a senior level job. I'm very interested in this position. One lady who used to work at my current company is working at the new corporation as an account exec. I was wondering if I should bring it up in my interview. The dilemma is while she worked at the small firm, no one of the employees liked her. Nobody liked her. She's very cold, condescending. I guess I'm afraid my interviews, the interviewers may not favor her well either. So on the other hand, I remember you talking about the power of who should I just talk about me and my skills and completely avoid the fact that I know this woman. Yes. Do exactly that, Paul. Don't complicate it with all the unknowns that you present here. Don't complicate it. Just present yourself as a great candidate. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Not who, you know, well, here comes a question says, don't use his name. Now this is a, this is an interesting question here. Check this out. Dan, I've been selling cars at a dealership for three months. Now it's starting to take a toll on me emotionally. I find myself getting more and more frustrated with the long hours on my one day off and Sunday off. However, uh, the one weekday off usually isn't a day off because usually there's a customer that wants to come in that day or I need to follow up with somebody. I do that in order to not have to split the deal in half with another salesperson. Finally, management saw my frustration. It affected a car deal with a customer recently and they told me to take two days off and come back Saturday refreshed and ready to go. I have a hard time relaxing and enjoying life in my off time without obsessing over how to do things better, what went wrong, et cetera, help. Well, you're, you're describing a malady in your position that is not unlike, you know, what a lot of us face. And when you're in commission sales like that, you always have that pressure, man, I really need to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or I'm going to lose a deal. No, that's really the characteristics of an inexperienced amateur salesperson. You want to grow beyond that. I mean, high achieving real estate agents are not available 24 seven. That's nuts. You know, I see people, you look down the row in church and somebody gets a beep, you know, 1030 from a potential customer and they pop up out of the chair and go answer it. I mean, that's nuts. That that's totally absurd. That would be nuts. I don't care what the, what the profession is, what the business is. Now, certainly if you're a heart, heart surgeon and you did three surgeries on Saturday, you may have to be available, but even there, you're going to schedule time to be away from that. Totally. Here's what I want you to do as a car salesman. I want you to just Google Joe Girard, Joe G I R A R D. He's listed as the world's greatest salesman sold Chevy's in Chicago. He's listed in the Guinness book of records as the world's greatest salesman still to today. He sold in one year, 1973, he sold 1,425 cars, averaged six a day, and sometimes had as high as 18 in one day. Now, the way Joe did that is just simply by building relationships with people. People would come in. They weren't just buying a Chevy. They wanted to deal with Joe Girard. He would pay $25 to anybody who gave him a referral. So he would send out thousands of $25 as rewards to people who referred new people to him. 
So he built his business like that, where he wasn't just waiting on the lot and hoping to get his turn for the next person that walked onto the lot. No, he just built his reputation. I did that very aggressively and did it very quickly. Do something that sets yourself apart. If people are just buying a car, then any salesman will do. But if it's a distinct experience to do business with you, then people will line up for you and they will wait for you until you're available. I, I sold cars, you know, years ago, boy, this was back in the mid seventies in, in California, right after I got my master's degree in clinical psychology, discovered I was way too impatient and bored out of my mind trying to be a psychotherapist. So I got involved in the car business. I've always loved cars. I love selling cars. Now, when I was selling cars on Catella Avenue in Anaheim, California, I mean, I would have these nice little old ladies come in and open up their savings account book and show me how much money they had and ask me what kind of a car can I get for this much money? Now, obviously that makes them a sitting duck to be taken advantage of, but why would they do that with me? And why did I have people lined up to do that? Because people discovered they could trust me. So they would do that. So I built my business very quickly on the fact that I was very fair and honest with people and they could trust me. I mean, I've told a story before on here. I'm sure I had a young guy walk onto the lot, Mexican guy walk onto the lot barefoot. Now car salespeople are notorious for prejudging customers and prospects. Somebody walks on the lot. Yeah, they're not a good candidate. They don't even have a car now. Probably don't have a driver's license. Probably can't get insurance. What a waste of time. Barefoot, obviously, you know, he's somebody poor. He doesn't have any status in the community. He probably doesn't have any money. Boom. Well, I've told the story in many ways, but, you know, taking care of that one first customer, treating him with respect, helping him into a car where he then pulled up his T-shirt and paid me with stacks of $20 bills. But over the course of the, that first year, my first year in the car business, I sold when you included that young man and his extended family, aunts, uncles, cousins, 14 cars to that same one extended family because I treated that one guy well. Well, you can do that. You can just establish a reputation for yourself so you're not just selling a commodity. No, you are the guy people want to deal with. That's how you do well in car sales. And you can do that selling furniture, real estate, or anything else. Develop your USP. What's your unique selling proposition? What is different about doing business with you than with just the next guy who happens to be in the cubicle over from yours? Establish that and you can thrive and you do not have to be available 24-7. You can take your days off, you can take vacation, and you'll still be at the top of the game in that industry. Well, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online radio show. Every week, I take your questions from you, the listeners. We unpack a few of those to talk about here in ways that will help all of us be more successful in what you're doing. If you've got a question, go to the 48days.com website, click on the podcast link, and you'll see a place there where you can submit your question. I love getting those in. It's one of the high points of my week when I open that email file and start going through the questions that you have here. Michael from Texas says, my family and I are wanting to move to the Franklin Brentwood area like you. And that's, that's where I live, Franklin, Tennessee, just South of Nashville. Like you, we fell in love with the people, the area and the countryside. Currently we're living in Dallas, find it hard to find jobs in the area. I'm thinking about starting a business. 
I have a strong background in technical support and training as well as background in fast food restaurants. What's your feeling about starting a business or what type of business would you recommend in the Franklin, Brentwood, Nashville area? Any ideas on the feel of the community? What type of business do you see would be more successful? Any ideas for where would be a good location, downtown Franklin or closer to Brentwood, Nashville? What type of businesses do you see as a need in the area? I'm open to any suggestions you may have as to the best type of business you think would succeed in the area. Okay, let me kind of back up. You're, you're talking about coming to this area. What does this area need? What's a good opportunity? Where should you be located? Keep in mind, you know, my formula is 85% of the process of having the confidence of proper direction in your career comes from looking inward. So your chances for success are based on doing what you already enjoy, not on finding some obscure business you think is needed in this area. Your success is going to come not from moving across the country necessarily, but from being the kind of person you already are in Dallas. You're going to find the same kind of people here, the same kind of opportunities here as you're finding there. It's not going to be that much different. If you choose to come here, then it ought to be because you do in fact choose to, to live in this particular area for other reasons. Now we, we move from, well, let me read another, another question here. Then I'm going to kind of back up again. Devin says, this is from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Should I move to Franklin, Tennessee? I'm mostly joking, but it seems like I keep learning about authors, speakers, leaders who live there and are doing things very similar to what I want to do. Isn't it easier to get started and find support if you live near so many similar leaders? I just don't believe there are many of these types of leaders in my current city. I actually had a dream that I was standing out in my yard. Michael Hyatt came jogging by in the street. He said he wanted to meet me to discuss a few projects. Then I woke up laughing out loud. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, Michael Hyatt is the chairman of the board of Thomas Nelson Publishers. Uh, he's a very easy to get to know guy. He's been out here to my place. When he started his podcast, he came out here, spent an afternoon. We talked about that. And then I connected him with Cliff Ravenscraft and Cliff got him all set up with equipment. Uh, but Mike's a, Mike's a great guy has a brand new book coming out that I'm going to be talking to you about more in the next couple of weeks, a new book called platform. Um, we're going to be doing some things to help him promote that as he will do to help me promote my new book. That's coming out with Thomas Nelson in August. So yeah, there's lots of people here that are great people. This is a hot spot for authors and entrepreneurs. Now, in regard to the, to the first question, the gentleman coming from, um, from Texas here, if you've got skill in technical areas, you get skill in fast food, restaurant industry and all that. I mean, that that's great. There's certainly opportunities here. If I were opening a business, the restaurant business would be the very last one on the list. If I had a list of a thousand businesses I would open in this area, restaurant wouldn't even make the list. There are so many here. It's so competitive. And well, and I personally, I just don't like the restaurant business, but um, it, it's a very, very tough industry to come into this area and do because there's so many players here already. When the new Nissan headquarters opened real close to where I live here in Franklin a couple years ago, uh, the Tennessee and the newspaper did a story and they said there are 150 places to eat lunch within a one mile radius of that new Nissan headquarters, 150 places to eat lunch. That did not count places that are only open for dinner, like Outback Steakhouse and others. That's 
not a kind of industry I want to jump in. I want to have more of a competitive advantage than that. But what you need to do is now, now here's another thing about coming here to start a business. I look for businesses that aren't geographic specific. I mean, I love books. I mean, that's no secret. I love everything about books. It'd be really easy for me to justify opening a little bookstore in Franklin, Tennessee. It's a quaint little town, tight community, lots of loyalty, wonderful events. You're going to be guaranteed traffic past your front door. I would not think about opening a bookstore in Franklin, Tennessee for all the tea in China. Because even with all those advantages, then I still have like a five mile radius of prospects. I have to get a pretty big percentage of those prospects to make that work. And then I'm dealing with entry level employees, evening and weekend hours when I don't want to be tied up, signed permits, leases, all those. I don't want to have to do with any of those things. I just want to sell books. So it makes it easier for me to sell books online if I have a virtual bookstore, an online bookstore, then I have instant access theoretically to everybody in the world. I can get a real tiny percentage of the buyers there and still have an absolute out of the park success. I mean, we sell more books than the average bookstore, the average physical bookstore does. And I have no employees. I don't have all the overhead that I mentioned. We just sell books and we send books to Sweden and Norway and Germany and Great Britain and all kinds of places. I look for businesses where it wouldn't matter if I lived in Franklin, Tennessee, or if I lived in Boulder, Colorado, or if I lived in Houston or Dallas. Now that's just me. There's still a place for bricks and mortar businesses, but I think you need to be very careful these days about looking for those because there, it is so challenging to make those work. And there's so many other businesses that don't have any of those logistical things constraints connected with them where you can be extremely profitable. Now, again, for our listener here, Devin, who wants to come here because there's smart people and authors and leaders here. Yeah, there really are. I mean, there are major publishers here. It's a great environment for innovative business. We have tons of venture capital available here. This is a central location for medical startups, but here's my caveat. I think finding leaders and innovators has more to do with us as individuals than it does with where we live. I mean, I've lived in Worthington, Ohio, just on the north side of Columbus. They're wonderful, innovative people there, had some great experiences there. Uh, We lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Great thinkers, movers and shakers. Golly, start up for some biz companies like Camping World came out of there. I mean, it's a great spot. I love the university environment there. Everything about it. We lived in Anaheim, California. Well, you talk about a hotbed of entrepreneurs. I mean, there were things just exploding all around us. I never made uh, up to that point, you know, I had never made that kind of money in my life with everything I put my hand to there. And then we were in short proximity to Lake Arrowhead and Palm Springs. and Of course, the ocean, surfing, all those cool things. Great place to live. Now we live in Franklin, Tennessee. We moved here because we like the change of seasons. We're within a day's drive of most family. We're actually within 500 miles of 50% of the population in the United States. We're near a major airport. We have a lot of cultural things here. Living here, moving here had nothing to do with my business, job, career possibilities. That I figured out afterward. We moved here because we thought it was a great place to be. So, If you want to come over from Dallas and up from Louisiana, come on in, come on in. 
But don't think that anything's going to magically change because you change your environment or circumstances. That kind of success is very much an inner game. So just be realistic about that. Be realistic about your reasons for moving, but make sure that you don't just assume the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Because as the old saying goes, the grass is greener where we water it. And there are probably opportunities to do that where you are at this current time. Well, Steve from, uh, where's Steve from here? I don't see where Steve's from. Anyway, I've been enjoying your podcast for a long time been stuck in a dreaming state for just about as long. I've heard you many times where you've instructed others on how to turn their linear pay to residual income via the internet or whatever. For almost 40 years, I've worked menial or service type jobs, such as installing electrical components on helicopters to monitoring equipment on ships under construction to be in a prison guard. I've also repaired, maintained electrical, electronic navigation and engineering equipment while in the Navy, all of which was either straight salary or hour wage positions. How can I transition from these linear paying jobs to more residual income jobs? Now I'm going to come back to that sentence because that's a real critical sentence. How can I transition from these linear paying jobs to more residual income jobs? Now, I do talk a lot about how to take an area of intellectual expertise and package that information. I mean, often it comes down to telling someone how to do the project rather than doing it yourself. I mean, as an example, if you can build a beautiful birdhouse, if you build birdhouses, there's a real quick ceiling to how many you're going to be able to, to turn out because it's very time and labor intensive. You have to buy the products. If it takes you two hours to make one, we immediately establish how many you could potentially do. And there's a quick ceiling to that. What if you drew up plans and created a materials list for what a dad and his son would need to build a beautiful birdhouse on a Saturday morning? Well, all of a sudden we've moved from linear income to the potential of residual income. You can be selling those plans. You can go from selling one to selling 10,000. And it's no problem at all. You can do that because there's no, it's very scalable. It's not limited by time and effort. You're just selling the plans. Worked with a lady one time who was doing gift baskets. She did beautiful gift baskets. She got an opportunity to do gift baskets for the country music awards. And then just after that, she did gift baskets for 4,300 Taco Bell managers at their conference that was here in Nashville, Tennessee. But she realized there were limits to that. I mean, it was just a massive assembly line to try to get those done. She had to hire high school girls. My daughter helped her for um, a couple months in doing, getting ready for some of those events. And she decided, and with my coaching, that she could leverage her expertise. How do you get those kind of commercial accounts if you are, in fact, know how to prepare beautiful gift baskets? But the real value was her intellectual expertise to know how to get those kind of commercial accounts. So she did a couple of videos, a little instructional manual and really rocked and rolled in selling information about how to. So those are examples about going from linear income to residual. I mean, other examples would be writing a book or selling insurance. But if you kind of recap what I just talked about in the last two minutes, nothing I've mentioned here is a job. To get residual income, you're going to have to move outside of a job. So you have to give up getting a salary, vacation time, medical benefits, retirement contributions. You have to be willing to step outside of that and really just get paid for your results. 
willing to step out of that and say, okay, I don't want residual income. I mean, even if you develop the next socket wrench, but you're working for an engineering company, they're going to pay you for your time. They're not going to pay you for the next 50 years where they're getting income based on what you developed while you were working there. You're going to get linear income. They're going to get residual income. And if you develop a new software package while you're working for a company, I mean, unless you've got an unusual structure, that's going to belong to the company. They may sell that for the next 80 years. If it's the next windows or the next app, mobile app for your iPhone, they're going to get the residual income. So you have to be willing to step out of being paid in a job. You can't have it both ways. You're not likely to take any of the skills you describe here, although you can take any of the skills you describe and look at ways where you could very easily move into linear income, but it's not going to be couched as a job. Going to have to be willing to move out of that. Well, you're listening to Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Every week I have the pleasure of going through your questions. What we're doing, we're going through and we're looking for ways where we're going to move away from just exchanging time for a paycheck. You know, my goal really is to encourage you to know your passion, live life fully, laugh readily, work with joy, make a difference in the world. That's what we're doing here. If you've got a question, you can go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link, submit your question. I'd be delighted to look at that, consider it in an upcoming podcast. Hi, Dan. I've enjoyed your work for many years. Do you have some guidelines on how to dress for an interview? Should I always dress up in a suit and tie or other situations that would allow for just a tie or even business casual? I'm primarily wondering what is acceptable dress for an interview for a job in an industrial setting where I'll be wearing Carhartts and work shirts every day. Well, if ever in doubt, my encouragement is to dress up, but it would be totally inappropriate to wear a suit and tie when applying for a landscaping job. As an example, it, it would appear that you aren't a good candidate. You don't really understand the culture, the environment. You hadn't taken the time to check out the company. So if you know that in this job opportunity, you would be wearing Carhartts and work shirts, then wear the sharpest, coolest stuff in that category. Just be really clean, well manicured and walk in there looking like a million bucks, but still wearing the kind of clothes that they are expected to wear in that environment. Nothing inappropriate about that at all. No, don't be a geek by wearing a suit and tie to that kind of a, an opportunity, you know, and, and times are changing. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, I, I spoke at the LeaderCast, Chick-fil-A LeaderCast simulcast here in Franklin on Friday. Did I wear a suit and tie? Not a chance. I wore an, an open shirt and that was not, not tucked in. I mean, when you look at the work environments today, I mean, I would cringe to have to put on a suit and tie. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of jobs anymore where that is even normal business attire. So know the culture of the company that you're applying with. That's the key to dressing appropriately for an interview. Pete from Illinois says, Dan, I want to thank you for all the information. I tried to start many businesses in the past, but always quit before anything really happened. My new idea is to build a website with a guide for people that want to visit Poland. I want to have a listing with places to stay. However, instead of typical hotel rooms, I want to promote places where they have a farm, horses, or other recreational activities. I want to charge then a commission for those that book through my website. 
Please let me know if you think this idea has a chance to be successful. I promised myself that I won't quit, but I don't want to waste time on something that won't work. Please let me know what you think. Thanks. Pete, I think the cost of marketing to such a select group of individuals, people who want to go to Poland, I mean, that's not a real hotspot in terms of vacation destinations, people who want to go to Poland, and then that they don't just want to stay in a hotel in a big city, but they want to stay in a unique environment like you're describing. I think that's like finding a needle in a haystack. I think the cost of marketing to such a select group of individuals would outweigh the profits you could potentially make. You ask. That's my opinion. Okay, Dan, this comes from Anina. Dan, thank you so much for your podcast. Here's my question. I have a mobile application, do-it-yourself platform called Mobile Mags, and I'm just not having any luck generating sales because I can't seem to find people who, who either want a mobile app, people who can afford a custom $10,000 app, or finding people who find value in these mobile apps. I don't know how to find my customers. Do you have any suggestions for me? Yes, I do. I looked at your, I looked at your website. Here's, here's the quandary with your idea. If someone doesn't know a lot about or understand mobile apps, they're going to need a whole lot more information than what you can give them on your website. I mean, your website's fine. It's very professional, but if I didn't understand apps pretty well, I wouldn't be able to work my way around there in the information that you have. So if somebody doesn't know a lot about apps, they're going to need a whole lot more education information than what you can give them on your website. If they do understand a lot about mobile apps, then they don't really need your website or your services. I mean, we have people standing in line to do mobile apps for us. As a matter of fact, you know, it's funny how um, the app process went originally. I had people contacting me, you need a 48 days app. You know, it's only $60,000 and we can do it. I said, well, we'll check out to see if people even want that. When apps were new and people weren't real, weren't really asking for them anyway. And so, you know, then they got a little more popular and then people would come back and say, wow, we can do that for only, you know, $30,000 and then 20, 10. Well, it came all the way down and all of a sudden we had people saying, gee, I want to do an app. We had a guy do an app, Dan Waller, who's now one of our 48 days advisors. We brought him on our advisory team, did an app. I'd never met him, never talked to him, never heard him. He just did an app and said, what do you think? And I said, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That is everything that we wanted. Let's work together in doing this, 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 and this. You know, he runs our tweets out on there. He does promos on there, blah, blah, blah. It's a great blending. He did that for absolutely nothing. And we had somebody else who was offended, who actually threatened legal action as absurd as it is, because we didn't let him do it because he had asked us about it too. And I'm like, my gosh. So this whole area of apps has changed dramatically, but in light of what you're trying to promote here, it's a little complicated because it's like me. Let's say that I want to sell chickens online. Well, I first have to convince people of the benefits of having chickens, you know, the benefits, the health benefits of fresh eggs, like we get from our neighbor of range free chickens. But by the time I educate them and they agree that having chickens is a really cool thing to do, they can go buy chickens any place they want to. I think you're in that kind of a quandary with this. I think if you spend the time to educate people personally, it'll open their eyes to the fact that it's really not very complicated to get an app up and running and they have a whole lot of choices in how to do that. I think you've, you've 
wedged yourself in here where, yeah, uh, if people don't understand it, they're not even going to respond. If they do, they're going to blow right by you. Tough kind of thing that you've kind of laid out. I think you need some tweaking to have a viable business idea. Bob says in a recent show, you talked about a lady selling eBooks for plants and gardening. They got me thinking, how would one go about selling enough PDFs or eBooks to make it worthwhile? I think I'm fairly good at my craft computers and networking. However, there are so many other books, hard copy and eBooks that would anything I put out just be background static and not sell enough to be worth my time to create it in the first place. Is there kind of a minimum size? I would not be thinking of putting out the next great 600 page tome on, you know, gigabyte ethernet, something maybe fewer than 50 or even 30 pages about networking of some kind, just a big idea at this point. What website could someone sell a PDF? I don't have my own website. Well, Bob, you, you lay out some real challenges, but you identify clearly where your starting point is. It's very difficult to just sell a commodity, even a book with great knowledge in it. I mean, people, people buy, people buy Joel Osteen books because he's a celebrity and a very well-known name. I'm getting ready to release another book. Wisdom meets passion in August. The publisher will have to be careful here. The publisher wasn't really involved in shaping new and revolutionary content. Not at all. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, they'll pretty much publish anything I write because I have a reputation as a guy that people are already listening to. So to be successful selling eBooks, you have to establish yourself as a reputable authority as a brand, as someone that people look to for advice and information. Then you can sell any length book, any cover design, any font style. Those things don't matter. Those are not critical issues. They're not important, but you have to be somebody that people are listening to. Now I know what I just presented here is like a chicken and the egg. I mean, how do you get started? If you can't do anything and tell people listen to it, well, you just get in the game. So start writing Start a blog. You don't have to have a website, but start a blog. Start a blog where you start writing about the content that you would have in a book. Start building an audience for your content. Comment on other people's blogs. Start establishing yourself as a name and as a credible expert in that arena. That's how you then create the foundation when you're ready to go ahead and produce an ebook or a book that people will buy. But just creating something of good content when nobody ever heard of you. No, it's going to be impossible to sell enough to make it worthwhile. You're absolutely right. Get in the game. You can position yourself as an expert and go from there. Well, gentleman says after turning 58 years young, how can I find my God given gifts? I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't have the speaking personality to market my business. You can be an entrepreneur and not have a tongue in your mouth, but, but you have to choose a business that then doesn't require that component. So if you don't have the speaking personality to market your business, you have two choices, either link arms with somebody who will be the spokesperson for your business or do it in such a way that doesn't require that component at all. Now there are a lot of businesses you can do like that. I mean, you can sell books, you can sell birdhouses, you can sell anything that we've talked about here today and do it totally in a format where you're doing all your marketing online and in what we would call a passive format where it doesn't require nose to nose, belly to belly selling at all. You can do that. But if you're 
selling accounting services, as an example, and you want 10 small businesses as your customers, no, then you have to have the speaking personality to go out and sell that in advance and to maintain those relationships. That's not something you can do just behind a internet wall. So make sure that your business matches your personality. That's just part of having a good business match anyway. And so, so start with that. Edward from Cincinnati says, is there a way to have the podcast automatically emailed to us? What do you recommend for online marketing and lead generation for our business and coaching? Well, if you get my newsletter, now let me just address the first part here at least. Is there a way to have the podcast automatically emailed to us? If you get my newsletter that comes out every Friday, it has a podcast synopsis in there with a click through that goes right to the podcast. If you are listening to the podcast on iTunes, I mean, all you have to do is just let them know. It'll automatically download the next one, be ready to go. Same thing is true on Stitcher. So those are easy to do. And certainly the most effective ways to be informed, at least about what is on the podcast. And then your second question, would you recommend for online marketing, lead generation for our business and coaching? Uh, all of the above. I mean, all the things we talk about. I mean, we're getting ready to have our Coaching with Excellence live event here, May 24th and 25th. I go through 48 ways to build your business. All the things you can do, blogs, podcasts, newsletters, speaking, writing, I mean, interviewing. I mean, there are a whole lot of things you can do. You can create little free audio products that you give away or a list of 10 ways to do something. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. What you have to do is select, and I don't expect anybody to do all 48, but I expect our coaches, people who come to our event, I expect them by the end of the Coaching with Excellence event to have chosen four or five things they're going to do for their marketing. How are you going to fill your schedule? How are you going to get people lined up that want to see you? What are the four or five things that you're going to do and how are you going to do those consistently and with excellence? That's what it comes down to. You need to select four or five that fit for you. If you enjoy a speaking format, then get opportunities to speak to the Rotary Club, the Lions Club, local church groups. You can do nothing but that and fill your coaching schedule. If you like to write, do a weekly column for your newspaper. But out of all the things that we go over, you know, my encouragement is to find the one or two that really fit you. A couple more questions here. We'll go go fast. Let me see here which ones I want to do. Okay. Well, you know, here's one I'm going to do. There, um, a whole bunch of them. I'm going to select this one from Lisa. I'm a long-time listener to your podcast. This is my first time asking a podcast question. Yay for me. I'm a graphic recorder, which means I capture conversations real-time with color, text, and Im images. Graphic recording lets groups see the big picture. I just launched my web website, Seeing Colors. I'm excited about growing my business. I think hiring a coach is essential for making that growth happen. My question is around return on investment when it comes to hiring a coach. What is a reasonable ROI? For example, if I have a three month commitment with a coach at a cost of $1,500, I want my ROI to be at least $1,500, but preferably three to five times more. Is that reasonable? How much time should it take for you to see that return on investment? Lisa. Okay. Some things don't need to be measured in mathematical terms. Now let me just be ridiculous for a minute. What's the, what's the ROI? of buying my wife a Mother's Day gift. 
What's the ROI of spending time with my granddaughter? I mean, some things are worth investing in as part of our own growing and learning experience. I'd encourage you to see coaching in the same way. With real coaching, there ought to be lots of personal benefits that are not directly related even to your business. Now, if you, well, let let me just give a couple examples. Okay, so I worked with a dentist. He was making about $350,000 a year. He was contemplating suicide. We got him out of what he was doing that he hated so bad. He now... He went back to school, got another degree. He now is a family counselor. He absolutely loves what he's doing. I've got testimonials from him. He says he'll do this till the day he dies. He now makes about $70,000 a year. He paid me $4,500 for my Eagles Club coaching. And I was able to take him from making $350,000 to making seventy. He got his health back, his relationship back, saved his marriage and saved his life. What's the return on investment? Did he get a, did he get a reasonable ROI on his $4,500 investment? I've got another physician I'm working with right now. A young guy makes a lot of money. He's severely overweight on heavy medication for depression and rage control. Now I, I think we can actually duplicate his income because of the, some of the things he's positioned for, but there's the likelihood that I'll decrease his income. What's the return on investment? We have to look at, you know, coaching involves more than just how I can make more money. Unless that's, if that's exactly what you want. If you just want a business consultant, I mean, there are ways to structure it. So it's totally dependent on return on investment. Jay Abraham, I mean, he made millions by working with businesses where he had no guarantees at all, no guaranteed payment. He would benchmark where the business was and then take 10% of the increase like over say the next 36 months or something like that. You can structure a relationship with a business consultant where you are guaranteed a return on investment or they aren't paid. But if you're really looking for coaching, be careful about framing it in terms of just ROI, there ought to be benefits that go way beyond what you're going to just show on the bottom line. I mean, I certainly expect my coaching to be more than that. I work with lots of people starting businesses, changing careers. But if we look, I mean, sometimes people double, triple and quadruple their income. There's no question about that. Sometimes it's just a soft horizontal transition to duplicate what they're doing now. And some, as I've described, we actually reduce dramatically their income to get their life back. So be sure what your goals are in having a coach. If it's just for ROI, just get a business consultant. That's probably going to be a little different. Make sure that's what the focus is on is just that. Well, great questions as always. And there are so many more. Well, thank you for submitting the questions. You can always shoot those in. Just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. But whatever you're doing, I'm confident you're on this path of having work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Let us know what you're doing, what we can do to help you. Now, come see us at one of our live events. Get involved in the 48days.net community where you get a lot of resources from a whole lot of very smart people. Have a great week doing work that you love.